You're listening to Death of the Reader. Dom Romeo here with you. I'm delighted to be joined by Australian crime fiction royalty, Chris Hammer. His sixth crime fiction book, an eighth novel overall, The Seven, is the third outing for Ivan Lukic and Nell Buchanan. Am I pronouncing their names right? Because I only pronounce them in my head, Chris. So do I. So I, I say Ivan Lukic, but I'm not sure that is accurate. So I should really go and listen to the audio book because they'll probably get it right. The seven founding families of Yawandari have lorded over their district for a century, growing ever more rich and powerful. A man is found dead in the canals of the Yawandari irrigation scheme that made their wealth. Ivan and Nell are called in before this political time bomb sets off. But can they defuse it? Chris Hammer, welcome back to Death of the Reader. Oh, so fantastic to be on this fantastic show. Oh, thank you. I, I'm going to pretend that it's all of my great work, even though I'm the ring-in this week. But uh, you're more than welcome. I we love having you. The whole team, brilliant. Excellent. Uh, and I agree with you. Thanks for having me, team. First of all, we just found out that you've taken the BAD, B-A-D, Sydney Crime Writers Festival Danger Award for Best Crime Novel of 2023 with The Tilt. This is your second time on this particular prize. Do you have your eye on a new trophy cabinet now that the current one is presumably running out of space? <laughs> oh, what a question to ask. Look, it's fantastic to win uh, The Danger for the second time. The criteria has changed a little the first time I wondered, it was a shared prize with Gary Jubelin, the former detective, because Bad does both fiction and non-fiction. The criteria back then was about crime books or films, whatever, very much in a Sydney setting. The criteria now is broader. It highlights Australian settings and also social justice issues. I think that's really astute, if you like, because so many Australian crime novels uh, cover Australian settings, often rural but not always, um, and also the social justice issues crop up again and again and again in Australian crime fiction. So I think that's, that's a really good recalibration of the prize. And now there is a prize for fiction and a prize for nonfiction and also a People's Choice Award. Is there a prize for fact represented as fiction? Because I feel like I can see some of the characters in your books as historical figures. No, I don't typically base my characters on real-life people. Now, I know authors that do, like literary authors, and, and their friends and family live in fear every time a book comes out that they're going to be depicted and, and not particularly favourably in the books. I don't Now, it might happen unconsciously, of course, some of the issues in the book are real. So it's a crime fiction book and that's if you want to read it as that, that's fine. But just in the background, there's a number of issues. One's the issue of water trading. Another issue is the opacity of political donations in Australia and the original sin, if you like, the, the dispossession of Indigenous people. They're in the background. It's there if you've got the eyes to see it. If not, that's fine. It's still a you know a rip-roaring crime story. At least I hope so. Absolutely. And I guess the other thing is if you're writing about a town or a village or an area, chances are the same sort of, for want of a better word, 
stereotypes, no, archetypes keep recurring. Of course, there's going to be the corrupt whatever and the, you know, the dodgy whatever operating in that area. That's, that's what life is about. There's an extremely high chance there's going to be a body fairly soon. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, it's not a crime novel. Of course. Now that you're a novel deeper in, how proudly do you look back on your catalogue? Oh, very proudly. I mean, I... I get a great deal of satisfaction of the of the books, all of the six crime novels. Uh, my first one, Scrublands, I'm proud of it, but it, it really helped me break out and, and, you know, achieve a level of visibility, if you like, that has carried me through. I do think though my my books have changed over those over the six. The the more recent ones uh, last year's book, The Tilt, and then this year's book, The Seven, are structurally more complex. They're probably more accomplished books. Now, that doesn't always mean that they're going to be better books because, you know, at the heart of a crime book is the story, the com- how compelling is the story. And Scrublands is a very compelling story, but it's got one point of view. It's told pretty much through the eyes of the journalist who goes to this dying town. In the Tilton Seven, you've got these three point of view characters in three separate timelines. Um, and I couldn't have written those books without having written the books like Scrublands first. And I couldn't have written Scrublands, I think, if I hadn't written. I wrote two nonfiction books, The River and the Coast, where I learned a lot of craft. They also gifted me some terrific locations and settings around Australia. And I think maybe I couldn't have written those books if I hadn't been a journalist for 20 or 30 years. So one thing has led to another. Wow. So you're going to tell me you didn't actually grow up in the Riverina, that you're not? No, I, well, I grew up, no, I grew up in an isolated little town, you know, on the Murrumbidgee River called Canberra, which. (laughs) (laughs) You do have a way with words, which, 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 believe me, in the 60s and 70s was Pretty well, it was a big country town, put it yeah, that way. Right. So, yeah, it's just that I have family in Narandra, and one of your books is set right in and around Narandra. And I'm kind of half expecting when I give copies of it to family that my brother, who's a doctor, might say, Oh, I know who that character is. I treated him, you know, but but no, he hasn't yet. So, you this does happen. Um, it's almost like is art imitating life or life Im- imitating art. I wrote a book called Treasure and Dirt. That's the first of the of the series featuring the homicide detectives Ivan Lukic and Nell Buchanan that are in the seven. Treasure and Dirt is set up in a fictional version of Lightning Ridge. It's an opal mining town. And, it, and opal mining towns are, are hard scrabble and they, the miners tend to be like one-man bands or a partnership or maybe a little family concern. But I inv- invented this kind of religious cult that were getting their, their their devotees to register themselves at miners so they, they could achieve a larger, you know, economies of scale sort of thing. I thought that was a great idea. And then afterwards, I was told that that had actually happened there. And, and so it was like, wow. I, and I'd never even heard any, any of that. I just imagined that storyline. And so, but sometimes you really almost subliminally key into what's happening. So... Scrublands, I wrote, it took me years to write, but 
I'd finished it by about 2017. It was published in 2018. There's a storyline in there with, without spoiling too much um, that relates to Australian Special Forces soldiers committing war crimes in Afghanistan. That wasn't public knowledge. You know, no one had heard of, you know, Ben Robert Smith or any of those sort of people back then or even the existence of these crimes. But but I had heard whispers because I was a, you know, as a journalist, so some of my mates were starting to investigate it. I never realised that that would become the, the huge issue that it has become. So that wasn't so much me imagining it. It was just sort of tapping into something that was just bubbling in the background. So there is every good chance that, if, if you're ever uh, kidnapped and punished and killed and turned up as one of the bodies in a little village, it's because you've accidentally told a true story without meaning to because you've got that imagination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've never thought of that. Thanks for that. Oh, sorry. I'll sleep well tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but not with the fishes. Yeah. Is there a list of things that uh, grow on from each novel? Is there like, you know, you, you've written one and you realise, hmm, same characters, slightly different setting. Maybe I need to add this to the mix. Well, as I said, the, the books have become in some ways more complex. But what happens is typically as I'm writing one book, the next book is starting to suggest itself. So the first book, Scrublands, when I was writing it or when I started to write it, I was just thinking it's all about plot. That's the mark of a successful crime fiction book, a cracking plot. And so I endeavoured to give it one. But in the writing, I, I, I began to realise there is so much more to it. The setting is very important. Um, the characters, of course, in any book are important. But also the way you tell the story, the voice, who's telling the story, the point of view characters. And one thing that, that um, by the end of the book I realised is there's a great kind of personal story about the journalist Martin Scarson, his kind of emotional voyage. So he's a different man at the end of the book than at the start of the book. He's becoming more um, self-aware, more emotionally available, that, that sort of thing. And that it was that that suggested the next book, Silver, where he goes back to his old hometown. In Scrublands, he goes to a town where he's never been before and knows no one. But in the second book, he still knows people who live there he still has relatives in the town, and it's all about, well, part of the storyline. There's there's murders to solve in the present day, but the backstory is all about him confronting the traumatic events of his childhood, and that story then suggested, what about his partner, Mandy Blonde? What, where, you know, what's shaped her, if you like, and so that ends up being the book Trust, and so that became a very important element of my books, and by the time I'd finished Trust. I was thinking, well, it's easy. I don't find it difficult at all to cook up crime plots, but where else I would take them on their kind of emotional voyage, I wasn't sure. So I thought I'd give these guys a break and I'd write a standalone book, which I did. And then I thought, well, I can't have another journalist because it'll just be like Martin, Scarston, Light. So I started writing, you know, kind of a police procedural with Ivan and Nell. But I wanted them to also have it like an emotional skin in the game, which they certainly do in, in um, Treasure and Dirt, for different reasons. They're both their careers are on the line, and their what they discover impacts on them personally. And so, by the end of that book, it was suggesting other places to take these characters, if you like. So, yeah, one book tends to suggest the next 
yeah, the next book. That's brilliant. Now, one thing you brought up there was a great character that I did fall in love with reading the books, uh, Mandalay Blonde or Mandy Blonde or Mandy Bond, as she's turned into, uh, I think, in the adaptation. That's right. So, so there's a, a television adaptation. It's coming out. It's November 16th in Australia uh, on Stan, the streaming service. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, I've seen the first episode and it's brilliant. They've, they've in, in, in some senses, it's very loyal to the books, but in other ways, it's reimagined. Like, like I, I think better suited to the medium of television. You know, they, they've they've made it better for that medium, and they have they have changed some of the names. She's still Mandalay, I think, but yes, they've changed her to Bond, and and there's an old bloke called Harley Snouch. And he's now, I think, Harley Regan. And I think they've done that because they've almost combined a couple of characters there oh, um, right. to, to, to I, I guess, condense it. But I tell you what, they've done a fantastic job. So, yeah. so you're not heartbroken that they've started to change your brilliant and evocative names to things that are a little bit more pedestrian? Uh, you know, I'm, Martin Scarston's a pretty good name and, and Mandalay is still there. No, yeah. I, I'm, I'm happy. Knowing that there is the option for TV and film adaptations, has that changed the way you write or approach your writing? No, not at all. Um, I've had it said to me, oh, it's every writer's dream come true to have a TV show made, as if that's some sort of end goal. Now, I'm absolutely delighted that it's been made, particularly as they've done such a good job. I'd probably feel totally different if, if they'd done a lousy job. But I'm very happy writing my books. I haven't had any real involvement in the production. Um, I don't feel overly protective of it. Uh, that's partly because it's been made by such a great production company, Easy Tiger. So they're the company behind the Jack Irish, you know, the Peter Temple books. I actually love those yeah, too. So I yeah, think I'm going to like your yeah. series when it comes to television. And they do. they did Rake which is another favourite, and they're doing Colin of Accounts and The Twelve. They're, they're a great company. The chief writer on it, Felicity Packard's a friend of mine, so I knew it was in safe hands. No, so I'm quite happy to concentrate on the books. I don't want to get involved in, in writers' rooms. You know, I don't want to um, start doing, you know, true crime podcasts or audio books. Uh, um, that, that's a good can be a good solid income earner for writers. So I'm in no way critical of that. And we're all, our brains are all configured differently. But for me, and I've been doing a book a year and that's quite a lot of work. I just want to concentrate on that. I think if I spread myself too thin, the books might suffer. Mm-hmm. And that, and you, I don't want to do that for, for my own sake and also for the reader's sake. That's brilliant. Your your readers, thank you. That's, <laughs> that's really good. Good Thanks, on you. Doc. How do you manage getting those wonderful names past your writing editors? So what happened when I was writing Scrublands, mm. my expectations were, by the time I got into it, I thought this book's, I think this is good enough. This will probably be published. But my expectations were shaped by those two previous books, the nonfiction books, that were very well received but sold almost nothing. So that, that's what I was thinking. I get the book published have a launch, mates would come along, slap me on the back, tell me I was the best writer since Hemingway, all that sort of stuff. 
And then the next day I go back to work in my real job, which is what happens with most writers in Australia. So I'm writing away, you know, stolen hours late at night on the weekends. And honestly, I think I just got a bit bored. So Scrublands has got these Dickensian type of names, you know, Harley Snouch and Martin Scars and Mandalay Blonde, Codger Harris. You know, they're a little bit, um, a little bit over the top. When Scrublands was published and was successful, I was, I was feeling a bit embarrassed about that. I was thinking, oh, I've over-egged the pudding a bit here. Uh, I was at an event one night, it's, you know, and afterwards I'm signing books, and a reader came up and said, you know what, I just love your names because your books have multiple plot lines, true. The names are very distinctive, and it helps me keep track of who's who. And I thought, you know what, she's right. Of course, I work with some of the, I'm very privileged, I work with some of the best editors in Australia. And of course, if the names hadn't worked, they would have pushed back on that. They would have advised me, hey, listen, this is a bit over the top. They didn't because I guess they thought the same as that reader. And I think that now too. And I've kept going um, partly, partly because I enjoy it, but partly because I have a lot of recurring characters. So Ivan Lukic, for example, is in the first books, the Martin Scarson books, very, very minor character, right? But there's a whole lot more that keep recurring through the book. So I could hardly have all the recurring characters have these kind of outlandish, eccentric names and then have all the new characters with kind of plain vanilla sort of names. So I've, ha- I've had to lean into it a bit. My, my, my favourite, I think, is in Treasure and Dirt. There's a bloke who runs an earth-moving equipment company and his name is Trevor Topsoil. Well, I assumed he changed his name by deed poll or it was his showbiz name. <laughs> he might, Indeed, he might well have done. That did make me laugh when I read it, but I didn't think it was his actual name. <laughs> I thought that was like um, a little bit of a placeholder and then actually that's a good business name. We'll keep yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Last time round in the tilt, your cast wrangled with historical impacts on rural towns and in particular with the large water regulator stifling the forest. Now, in in seven families, the titular families uh, are involved in the irrigation scheme. What drew you back to the politics of water? Is it the fact that you grew up in Canberra on the Murrumbidgee? No, I um, at one stage I was a journalist for thirty years. Mm. Uh, at one point, I was uh, a senior writer for the Age, the Melbourne paper, but based in the Canberra Press Gallery. And one of my responsibilities, my rounds, if you like, was the environment. And this is in around 2008, the Rudd government had just been elected and uh, there were these two big environmental issues that they're trying to address. The scarcity of water in the Murray-Darling Basin and climate change. Uh, and, you know, 15 years later, there's still these big, two big intractable, seemingly intractable issues. And so I was writing a lot about how the new Murray-Darling Basin plan was going to reform the use of water in the rivers and hopefully do more to protect the environment. So I knew a lot about that. Then I went and wrote the book, The River, and went out there and see how it really impacted. So I had this background knowledge about some of the the issues there, both for the towns, the farmers, for the environment, for the Indigenous sort of histories of the area, everything, right? So that's there in the back of my mind. I write start writing The Tilt, which is set in this 
a real location, the Bama Milua Forest, the world's largest river red gum forest. And so water is, is central to that story. And that made me think about all these issues about irrigation. But I really couldn't fit that storyline into the till because it's more of a natural environment, right? It's, it's in the background. What The forest is being starved of water because there's not enough because it's being used for irrigation. That's as far as it goes. But then that seeded the ideas for the seven, which is set. You wonder is a fictional irrigation town dominated by these seven families that helped establish it a century ago. One thing that strikes me when you say that, I immediately picture the map that you provide of the town, and you always provide a map, it seems to me. Why is the map essential? Well, it's probably not, but how it came about is when I was writing that first book, Scrublands, I had the setting right from the start because I'd I'd visited a small town, spent a week uh, in a small town in the Western Riverina called Wakul. And the reason I went there is it was a dying town, a desperate town. It's an irrigation town, but there was no water. The the river was bone dry. And so that's the setting for Scrublands. But the town in Scrublands doesn't look at all like Wakul. And the people aren't based on the people of Wakul either, of course. So I invented this town. But just to keep it accurate and keep it consistent, I started drawing a map not to go in the book, but just for my own reference, so that, say, in Chapter 2, the post office was next to the bank. You know, So then in Chapter 5, it wasn't across the road, and by Chapter 20, it wasn't two blocks away. That's sort of and so it was only a last-minute decision that when I submitted the manuscript, first to an agent and then later to publishers, that I included my very rough sketch and then as a discussion with the, uh, with the publisher, we came up with this idea of, of including the map, but a properly drawn map, these lovely 3D sort of maps uh, in the books. And we eventually found this guy, or Jane found this guy called uh, Alexander Potochnik, uh, who does these, he had these great examples. The only problem was he'd only recently arrived in Melbourne from Slovenia. So all the examples he had were like Dubrovnik and small towns in the Balkans. He hadn't been to an Australian country town, so I had to supply him. Fortunately, from doing that nonfiction book, I had lots of photos. So this is what a, an outback pub looks like, and this is what wheat silos look like, all that, all that sort of thing. But since then, uh, you know, I met, I met him several times now. He's a great guy. And we do these maps. Some are more difficult than others. Barmer Miller was relatively easy because he had something to work from. I've changed the names of the towns and some of their characteristics. Third Book Trust was set in Sydney, so we could actually, you know, look at Google Maps and, you know, see, see what it looked like. But the rest, there's a lot of backwards and forwards, but I love the maps, yeah. They're gorgeous. They really do help conjure. Like I, once I've, I don't study it, but I've, I look at it before I start reading and I go back to it, but I'm picturing where everything is in my head from your descriptions and the map. It's beautiful. Well, one thing I say is some people really like the audio books. Mm-hmm. And I realised if you download the audio book, you don't get the map. So all listeners need to do is Google me. I've got a website. All the maps are there. You can download them. You can print them off. Each of these books has been inspired by 
particular locations. In the tilt, it was the Balma-Millua Forest and its flooding. In Treasure and Dirt, it was Lightning Ridge. Why did the Collyamboli Irrigation Area call for hereditary oligopoly? The, the, the Uundri isn't based on Collyamboli. It just happens to sit in the location where Collyamboli was developed post-Second World War. So the town of Collyamboli was gazetted in like 1968. So it's, it's, it's quite a modern town. In the book, Uundri is established back at the time of the First World War. The reason why it's located there is because on the north bank, it's on the south bank of the Murrumbidgee. On the north bank of the Murrumbidgee, the government was developing the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area, uh, which is centred around the towns of Griffith and Leeton that are, are not typical Australian country towns. Both are designed by Walter and Marion Burley Griffin. They have a circular layout and they've got lots of Art Deco buildings. So that gives me the feel for you wondering. And, and so I needed to locate it somewhere. So that's a suitable location. So really it's got nothing to do with Collyamboli. The other big difference, of course, is those irrigation schemes like the MIA were developed by government. They'd repossess the land, you know, compensate the landholders, of course, build the irrigation schemes and then auction off the irrigation blocks or have lotteries or however they did it. That didn't fit my story. So I invented this scheme where... where the, the, the settler families were looking at this scheme across the river. They wanted something similar. The government wouldn't come to the party, so they went, they went ahead and built it themselves. And so a century on, it's become a very prosperous, successful place. All the irrigation farmers are doing well, or at least so it seems, but no one is doing quite as well as these seven families who have just become more and more prosperous and powerful. You mentioned their... Uh Burley Griffin, the Burley Griffins who designed those towns. I had no idea they designed those towns. It's lovely to learn a bit of history yeah. in the process as well. And and again, they designed your town. Yep. You said you like to start stories with a setting and a crime. What got you hooked on this accountant stabbed and abandoned in an irrigation scheme? So when, when I'm saying that, that I like to start with a, a setting and maybe a crime and maybe an idea, what I mean by that is... I don't mean I, I, that's the first pages of the book. That's the first steps in my process. I start with that and then I start writing and the, and the story just grows and grows and grows. But the reason I say that is just to indicate how central the setting is to, to my process. That's what I'm thinking from, from the start. The, um, so the book starts, the seven, as you say, with the discovery of a local accountant, he's also a member, a junior member of one of these seven powerful families, and he's found dead in rather spectacular circumstances in an irrigation canal, and Ivan and Ella brought in to investigate the murder. So that's the start of the book. He's found by some kids who are water skiing in an irrigation canal, but not being towed by a boat, but being towed by a farm truck along the site. Um, I saw that when I was doing the river up in, um, not in so much an irrigation area as one of those big cotton farms up near Burke, you know, on the Darling River. I thought that's such a, that's such a sort of teenager, kid, farm. Country. Sort of thing to do, you yeah. know, because the, the, the kids in, in real life were like 15 or 16, but of course they're on the farm and of course they can drive. 
Yeah, my, my nephews who grew up in Naranda or learnt to drive early, they have, what do they call them? Paddy whackers? Yeah, no. something like that. Yeah. yeah. One of the really engaging things about the stories you write is the history that frames them. It's not quite the enthusiastic history lessons authors like Vasim Khan will give you, but there's a real weight to integrating water rights, political donations, inheritance, and intergenerational wealth, issues of terra nullius, etc. How does your work as a journalist help you manage all these huge concepts in a book that carries such a pace? I've got a lot of background knowledge of from from being a journalist, you know, covering federal politics in some issues like water trading. I was there, I was sitting in the High Court when the Mabo decision was delivered. So I reported on, a, on you know, the, the, the end of Terra Nullius, the rise of native title. And of course, I'm writing this, this book. I don't think it's, it's always so conscious, but, you know, we were starting to work towards the referendum. Labor had been elected. Anthony Albanese on election night was the first thing that he sort of declared he wanted to do in government. So in some ways, it's topical. In other ways, though, I think if you're writing books set in Australia, and particularly rural Australia, and particularly books, as has happened in pretty much all of my, my books, you start, the crime in the present day is the last in a chain of events that's been set in motion in the past. There's often this idea of intergenerational trauma as well as inheritance. So you start digging back the decades and so in The Tilt, there's a storyline set in the Second World War. In this book, there's a storyline set around the, in the lead-up and during the First World War. So if you're digging down into the history of Australia, the topsoil's pretty thin, right? It's a couple of hundred years old, and after that, you hit bedrock. You know, 60,000 or more years of continual care for country by the uh, Australia's Indigenous people. So at some point, you need to acknowledge that in the books. And and so in the past, I have, I've had some Indigenous characters and I've had some indigen, uh, Indigenous issues. Native title is included in the, in the silver, uh, for example, in silver. But in this book, it, it's, it's probably more clearly addressed. And I think, I mean, it can be, it can be tricky to write because you don't want to step over the line into appropriation. There are some stories that properly belong to Indigenous uh, people and Indigenous authors to tell. But on the other hand, you don't want the other extreme where uh, white authors kind of exclude Indigenous characters. So it's sort of like a literary terra nullius. It's almost like, you know, pretending that they're not part of our community or not part of our history. So I think it's not like has to be in every book, but it definitely has to be in some books. Yeah, that's true. And and I like your your um, turn of phrase there of not the owners. Obviously, the whole point is mm. there's no ownership. There's mm. caretaking. Yes, that's the word I was searching for. Um, stewardship. Stewardship. Yeah. As with many of the great crime fiction duos, Ivan and Nell both learn from each other from book to book. After the last book took Nell home, did the time feel right to dive further into Ivan's brain? So in Treasure and Dirt, the first book that they're in, it's a two-hander. They're both point-of-view characters and the story bounces between the two of them. Uh, but then, then, as I said, 
these storylines from the past started emerging. And in that book, it means there's quite a lot of exposition as people are telling them what happened in the past. And there's an old piece of writerly advice, show, don't tell. They were being told a lot and so and through them, so were the readers. So when a similar kind of ideas, I guess, emerged with the tilt, these storylines of what happened in the past that have kind of linked or led to what's happened in the present, I thought I'm going to try writing them. So in the tilt, there's a storyline set in the early 1970s. It's a perspective of a 15 or 16-year-old girl told through her eyes and the story of a young boy who's taken the cattle into the forest during the Second World War. But because of the three timelines, I didn't think I could have two point of view characters in the present. So in the tilt, it's Nell. Ivan's very much present in a, in a story. He's just not a point of view character, right? So I move on. And as you say, in the tilt, there's a lot of personal issues there. Without giving too much away, Nell starts suspecting members of her own family of being implicated in a series of murders, right? So she, she's got that emotional skin in the game. This time I thought, well, same sort of thing. There's three storylines. I don't want two point of views in the present. So this time it's told Ivan to Ivan's eyes. Although once again, Nell is very much present in this story, right? You're just not getting get, seeing the world through her eyes. And so... Also, there's not in the same extent and not in the same way as in the tilt, but yes, Ivan's personal story in his past becomes part of this story as well. To make such good characters and to be able to talk from their point of view, like you've, you've got to make them come to life. How, how far have they come to life? Do they ever appear in dreams? Um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when, um, you know, I'm... Str- I'm struggling with a plot, you know, like I've written myself into a corner. I can't see what's happening. And sometimes I, I, I imagine the way through when I'm distracted, when I'm out walking or swimming. But sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and go, oh, that's it. But, but the actual, as people or voices, not so much. I wonder now with a television series coming out, whether, and it's being made visual, if you like, whether I'll see those characters more. I also wonder, I once shared a, a stage with a great English crime writer, Anne Cleves, the author of Shetland Books and of the Vera books. And she said she can't remember how she visualised Vera now because the TV series has been such a success and the actor, Brenda Blenheim, Blenheim is it, has so inhabited that character that when Anne writes her books... That's who she sees as Vera, and I'm I'm now wondering as I you know if I, the next time I have a book with with Martin in it whether I'll be seeing Luke Arnold you know that's how I will picture picture Martin. Yes, of course, because Luke Arnold's playing Martin in the series. That's right. Yeah, whereas in my head, because I saw an author photo, I always pictured Martin as you. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, a couple of people have said that. The interesting thing in the book in Scrublands. Mandalay Blonde is described in some detail and the actor, um, Bella Heathcote, who plays it, looks very much like the character in the book. But what I realised is Martin is not actually described physically, which 
makes sense because the story is being told through his eyes. Mm. So you don't describe yourself. There's one scene when he's looking at himself in the mirror, but what he sees is bloodshot eyes and he's sunburnt and he's looking a bit off colour, that sort of thing. Yeah, you. No, sorry, that was a joke. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. But which is how we look. If we look at ourselves in the mirror, we don't describe ourselves because we, you know, we see each other every day in the mirror. Mm. What we see is a bit of a blemish or some sunburn or, you know, a red eye or something like that. So I imagine in the book he is uh, about 40. So, that, yeah, that's about right. He, and he has been and still is to an extent a good-looking guy. And so Luke definitely ticks those boxes. Luke's hair's probably a bit longer than maybe I would have thought, but, I, you know, that's hardly a something to quibble about, right? Yeah, no, uh, of course. I, I, in fact, I, you know, it, he's good. Wait till you see it. I, I just have this image now that the next time you write yourself into a corner, it's going to be Luke as Martin in your dream saying, look, you fool, this is how I'd do it. Well, I hope so. That'll work <laughs> for me. <laughs> nice. Outback Noir is famous for unearthing the pasts of its protagonists. What made your wondery the right place to unearth Ivan? Ivan's is... Ivan's story has been, that part of it has been foreshadowed already mm. in um, in Treasure and Dirt and the Till. So it's already there. This is more just the resolution of it in this book. His story, as you say, it's been foreshadowed. His troubles always seem to drive him away from the case at hand and it caused a bit of friction between him and Nell, while Nell's troubles draw her in. So how do you create a foothold for Ivan for the case at hand? Well, no, he, he lives for his job pretty much. He, he's not, he doesn't have like a great social life or anything like that. So he's focused in himself. But the past helps explain why he's he can be a difficult character. In the first three books, the Martin Scarston books, if you like, he's a very minor character. He's the rather surly offsider to the main police officer, Morris Montefiore. But that, when I was doing this, this, uh, when I started writing Treasure and Dirt, I was thinking of, of using Morris Morinofore as the main character, but he's in the book, but he's excluded. For, as if you read the book, it'll, it'll become clear. And I thought, Ivan, oh, he could be good. He's a surly guy. Why is he a surly guy? And then he started to evolve. So he, he wasn't, that's all he was. It was just a minor sort of a bit player, if you like, in those third books, but he's grown since and he's continuing to grow. This is a masterclass in how to write, quite frankly. Thank you for allowing me to have these insights. I'm loving it. So Ivan's learning to temper himself and his professional efficiency after three years of working with Nell. What makes writing the interplay between the pair so engaging, even as their styles coalesce? It's, um, yeah, I'm interested in the characters. Of course, I have to be interested in the characters and what happens to them. If I found them boring or, or not engaging or something, how is the reader possibly going to find them interesting or engaging? Lovely. So in, in writing a book, because I'm, I'm you know, as I said, I'm, uh, I'm a kind of a pantser. I start with that, you know, a, a loose idea, a setting, a crime or something, and start writing. So the stories evolve as I'm writing them, but so do the characters. And that's one of the interesting things for me. Not so much. Sometimes it's where am I taking them? And sometimes it's, where are they taking me? Oh, lovely, lovely. So the follow-up question to that, and, and I'll give you the reasoning behind it. We spend a fair chunk of time in the opening of this of the seven 
are exploring Yawandari through Ivan's morning jog, and it's clear routine is the driving force for him and his recovery. You've mentioned that the routine of riding is a bit like daily exercise for you. So how else do you see yourself or have you put yourself in Nell and Ivan? Oh, well, they're not me. I'm trying to imagine them. That's that's what been one of the joys in recent years. So Scrubland starts and it's all told through the eyes of Martin Scarston. He's a white male heterosexual journalist. So it's not a real stretch for me to imagine Martin. He's not me. He's a bit younger, but, you know, he's much more damaged. But now I'm writing characters like, you know, a 15-year-old part Indigenous servant girl in 1913. And it's challenging, but it's enormously fun and satisfying to stretch the imagination. So I'm not going out and spending weeks deep diving in the library to work out who this character is. I'm imagining it. It's coming to life in my mind. You know, 11-year-old boy, uh, you know, a, a late 20s female police detective, Nell Buchanan. So I'm trying to imagine myself into these characters. And I think the secret behind that is a sense of authenticity in the characters. Right from the word go, I didn't want to just have two-dimensional black and white characters. You can have crime books like that that work really well, sort of action thrillers. You know who the good guys are, you know who the bad guys are, and the good guys are really good and the bad guys are really bad. I wanted to have flawed characters and complex characters. And so Ivan, if you met him, he might not be that likeable. But if you get inside his head, you begin to understand him. Nell, on the other hand, I think is much more immediately likeable. She's a great character. She's very feisty. You know, she stands her ground, brave, um, both physically and emotionally, but vulnerable, and they both stuff up. They both make mistakes, both professionally and personally. And maybe that makes them more relatable. Absolutely. They're human. They're not just two-dimensional characters. And they are affected by what they see and what they experience. So you can have crime books and, you know, very popular, say, golden age crime books like uh, Agatha Christie with Miss Marple. You know, she's confronting her 50th dead body and she's totally unaffected because for her it's just a puzzle to be solved. Great books, right? No no problem. But I wanted them so they're affected by it. I mean, the, the third book, Trust, Martin is deeply affected because there's, he's present at the time when people are killed. He, yeah, he doesn't just give a quip and walk away, you know, Hollywood style. You know, he's shattered by this. Yeah, that happens in other books. And I'm not going to be more specific because I don't want to give any spoilers, but the, the way people deal with death, again, makes it real and immediate rather than... It's not a comic book. Although there are comic moments in the book. I kind of like, you know, there's two ways. You can write a, um, say, a psychological thriller and you just ratchet up the tension, you know, ratchet up, up, up and up. My books have a bit, got a bit more light and shade. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's some amusing, so just a little bit of dialogue or something. There's, um, in this book, there's two bachelor and spinsters balls. And these are, these are sort of an outback tradition. 
The first one is in the storyline set in 1913, and it's still a very formal ball, serving its, uh, serving its original purpose, which was to bring eligible young men and women living on very isolated properties into a social gathering so they could meet each other, you know, so they could get married or whatever. By the 1990s, they just become rather debauched sort of piss-ups, right? And 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 so the, the two BNS balls are quite different. The first one's quite formal, but the one in the 90s is more just fun, like to, to write, I mean. It, it, it has a comic touch to it. And I like doing that. And the effect can be that by having a little bit of light and shade or a little bit of comic relief, that then by contrast makes the the thrilling sort of, you know, the, the more dramatic chapters all the more dramatic. Absolutely. That is so true. And Australians, if I may generalise, Australians are very good at at having the sadness or the the, the other side of it to to make the balance and to make the contrast. Mm. Um, I, I see it in Australian comedy. There is there is always a tinge of sadness in a lot of Australian comedy that you wouldn't find elsewhere. Yeah, a bit of pathos goes a long way. That's the word I couldn't remember. There's, yep. there's pathos in Australian culture that you don't find as readily in other cultures, mm. and it, it makes all the difference. If you do have a tinge of sadness, it, it does make the funny funnier. If everything was the same level of, of dramatic it starts to lose its effect because you don't have anything to compare it to. Sorry, once again, part of the masterclass in writing. Thank you very much. As with the tilt, as you've already mentioned, the seven follows distinct timelines. One, a series of letters from a young girl named Bessie employed by the founding families in 1913, pre-irrigation. Another following Davis, the heir to one of the families in 1993, and then a present day with Ivan and Nell. What appeals to you about the trilogy of voices? Well, it goes back to what I referred to earlier, the show don't tell. Yes. So so, so, then, so someone isn't saying to Ivan, oh, there was this guy in, who was murdered, you know, back in, in the day and this is what happened. It's far more engaging and dramatic if the reader is reading the story of what happens to these, this guy in the past. So it's... The trouble is, so, so, so that's that's why the the challenge is to make it work. Mm-hmm. So the book starts, and we've got and we've got the the dead guy in the canal, and Ivan and Nell come in to investigate. But then you've got the two, interwoven in that you've got these two other storylines, and at first there is no connection between the three stories except for the location. They're all around this place. You're wondering. Um, and then as the, as the book unfolds, the readers start seeing connections between the three storylines, the events that have taken place in the three eras. And you start drawing connections. Sometimes you, as a reader, you can make the connections before Ivan and Nell do because, you, you know, you, you're, you're reading stuff that they haven't, they don't know firsthand. But it's a challenge because you don't want one storyline to drag and stop the pace of the narrative you know, you don't want them treading water. On the other hand, you don't want one of the storylines to get in advance, if you like, of the other storylines. And as I'm writing, I'm still making it up as I go. So once I've got a draft done or a couple of drafts, then I'm going back, I'm pulling out the individual stories and sort of rewriting to, to get the tone right, the tense, the voice, 
and logistically consistent, you know, timelines, all of that sort of stuff. And then I'm stitching them back together and hopefully well, they're going to combine kind of seamlessly the experience for the reader. So it is. I think it's definitely more effective than, you know, just say Ivan and Nell continually finding old documents in a filing cabinet or, you know, being told something. The challenge, though, is to make it work. Oh, and the other big challenge is actually deciding who tells the story of what happened, say, in 1993, what happened in the First World War. The present day is pretty easy. It's either going to be Ivan or Nell. But the past stories, there's a whole, you know, cast of characters that are there in 1993 and back in the First World War. But which one of them is going to tell a story? That's difficult. Mm-hmm. In, in, um, in The Tilt, I had a point of view character. I don't know how many chapters I wrote with her, 10 or 12. In the end, she's not even in the book. You know, it just, it just, she couldn't possibly be in the right place at the right time for all the events. So I had to rework that. So that that's the challenge for me. So Chris, what comes next? What story started to imply itself in your head while you were writing The Seven, if you're allowed to tell me? Yeah. So I've started working on another book. It's it's coming along a bit too slowly. I'm beginning to panic. But another Ivan and Nell story has occurred to me. So in quite a different setting. Uh, so I'm working away on that. But then just recently I got to see the first episode of this Stan adaptation of Scrubland. So I'm looking at, at Martin and Mandy on the screen. I've got, God, they're, they're really fascinating characters. So I'm starting to think, well, I'll, I'll do the Ivan and Nell book. But then it might be time to go and do another Martin and Mandy book. So that's, that's what's in my mind at the moment. Can I say something that you probably don't want or need to hear? I need a bit more Montefiore. You like my okay, yeah. Morris yeah. is good. Yeah, I I think he's a good character. I'd love there to be something more revealing. I don't know, maybe you need to do something in his past. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on Death of the Reader. And thanks for being in here in person. I, I promised Felix I wouldn't fanboy. He gave me permission to fanboy a little. Consider yourself fanboyed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. Chris Hammer, author of The Seven and recently announced winner of the Danger Award for Best Crime Novel of 2023 with The Tilt. Thank you to Alan and Unwin, Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and DMCPR for their assistance in sourcing copies and preparing this interview. 